All right, so this is our seventh week uh, in the book of Acts. We've been kind of walking through it methodically and not really doing an expository kind of dissection of the book of Acts, but more of looking at it and looking for the Holy Spirit and what we see him doing, what we see him being about, what do we see that he's like, and things like that. And so the last six weeks, we've learned a lot. We've learned that he was promised from long ago. Uh, We've learned that he empowers, that he gives gifts, that things happen that wouldn't have otherwise happened, that people can speak in other languages that they don't know and and say things and know things that they shouldn't know or or heal people from diseases. Um, He empowers in that way. We also learn that he has a purpose, that he is, he's kind of a one-track mind. He's all about Jesus, and he's all about making Jesus known to the world, as well as to your heart, and to apply that deeper and deeper and deeper every day. Uh, We learn that he's a person, that he's not some impersonal force. He's not an it. He, He has opinions. He can speak. He has a will. Uh, and all of those things. Uh, We learn that he empowered the writing of Scripture, that he carried along the prophets in writing down God's words to be preserved for us. Uh, And last week we learned that he is an indiscriminate gift, that he represents God's love for all people. And he is available because God loves all people to any person that would put their trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, your background, etc. So the last two weeks here, uh, it'll be kind of like a case study. So I don't know if, uh, if there's many people who've taken microbiology in here, but um, when I was taking microbiology in college, it always helped after you're reading like 30 pages just all about a bacteria and like how it works and the, the, you know, how it's formed and all this stuff. It helps to have a case study. Like, how does this hit real people? And how does this bacteria uh, affect a real person on a given day, on a Tuesday afternoon showing up at the clinic? You know, what are, what are we looking for here? And so for this next two weeks, we're going to watch as the Holy Spirit, we, we're going to see some case studies. Firstly, we're going to look at how he works in individual Christians doing individual Christian things. But then we're going to look at the church as a whole and how he's guiding the church at large. So we're going to take two weeks to look at two case studies there. And so the Holy Spirit, he has, he has huge cosmic plans. He's taking history in a direction. He's guiding the global and universal church from when Jesus ascended to heaven till now. He is orchestrating stuff. He's powerful. He's God, right? He's also guiding and and leading the local church, and that includes our body of believers. And next week, we'll look a little bit more closely at, at how we can be led by him collectively as a local church. But this this huge, complicated picture that he is painting, these plans that he is orchestrating, they include little threads. 
that go through individual people, reaching individual other people. And it's, it's mind-boggling at how, how ge- general his view is, and yet how specific he gets. It's this type of thread that we'll look at today. And we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is the same today. That he guides individual Christians today, like you and like me. This story that we're going to look at today is, is awesome. And yet the same type of things happen today. All right. So before we jump into chapter 8, verse 1, I'm going to give it a little bit of a preface. So the church is started in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Jerusalem. They began to reach those Jews that were immediately there that had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost and were experiencing the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that the fact that these these uh, Galilean Jews were speaking a language that they should not know, glorifying the God of Israel, like, and then also painting the story of this person, Jesus, that died for them, and, and they, they could be saved by his name. So then fast forward, uh, the church is growing. People are being added to the ranks. People are coming to know Jesus. They're excited, and there's a lot of people, and they're, they're uh, taking care of each other. They're they're compiling their resources and, and giving to those who are less fortunate, giving to those that are in need, giving to those that have fallen on hard times. And, and yet, you know, with, with growth, uh, a lot of times there's, you're trying to play catch-up. You're, you're trying to figure out how to do this thing in a way that's, that's you know, systematically uh, equitable, actually. And if you look at Acts chapter 6, basically there was a group of Greek-speaking Jews and a group of Hebrew Jews that were kind of clashing because the Greek-speaking Jews were feeling like they were being left out in this kind of uh, early Christian church uh, loving community, that they were being shortchanged. And so what the apostles did was they gathered the church and said, all right, appoint people that are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom full and of good repute appoint seven men to this task of taking care of these needs in a wise way so that the apostles can keep on proclaiming Jesus as their full-time job. And so uh, that happened, and then one of those people named Stephen, he started uh, just doing his own ministry and preaching, you know, even though he's only, he's only supposed to do this other thing. But no, he's, he's just sharing Jesus, and he falls into persecution, and, and people... Uh, are accusing him of saying things that he didn't and, and uh, you know, coming at him with arguments that he can, he's refuting, but they're, they're getting, there's a mob forming. And ultimately, you know, eventually he gets stoned to death for what he's saying. And, and he's one of these seven men. And at the end of, of chapter seven, we see him being stoned to death, saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And then that, that, the first verse of chapter 8 is, and Saul approved of his execution. And so there we have this introduction of this person, Saul, that we looked at last week, and how he's a murderer. He's, he's a persecutor of God's church. 
And yet Jesus met him on the road as he was going to imprison Christians and he just saved him. He just yanked him out of his high horse and put him right in front of Jesus. And he had nothing to say other than, who are you, Lord? And this beautiful picture of God choosing someone who did not deserve it in the middle of their evil plots against Christians. And so then we have here in chapter 8, we're going to be introduced to one of the other deacons, one of the other people that were appointed to this duty. Uh, His name is Philip. And so we had Stephen, who was martyred, and then we have Philip. So let's go ahead and start uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, and we'll read the whole chapter. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. 
He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you would illuminate the scripture to us this morning and help us to understand it. Uh, but more than that, that it would, uh, that it would pierce our hearts, Lord, that, that the, the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword would, would divide uh, and break down any walls um, and any barriers that we have um, towards, towards you, towards who you are, towards what you have for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Saul here, he's standing. He's approving of Stephen's execution. And then, because of or, or alongside Paul, persecution arises in general, regionally. And disciples are scattered across Judea and Samaria there in verse 1. And when we read that, when we, when we read the, the scattering of disciples across Judea and Samaria, we should, be, we should have some kind of tingling in our ears of this sounds familiar. And the reason it sounds familiar is because this is exactly the plan. Jesus, back in chapter 1, uh, verse 8, says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so uh, there we have it. That, that sounds familiar. This sounds like it's the plan. And yet, look at the context. Why are they being scattered? Because of persecution. Because Christians are being tracked down and beaten and martyred and imprisoned. No fun. <laughs> Jesus didn't put that part, at least not in that verse. He did promise persecution. Um, but then we see in chapter 5, verse 32, uh, Peter and John and the apostles say, We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So Jesus 
he, he makes the commission. He says, go and make disciples. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And along with that command comes the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is their co-witness to, to witness in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so here in chapter 8, what we see is the beginning of this mission being fulfilled. Because the disciples are being scattered to these places, and then Philip, he finds someone with the help of an angel and the Holy Spirit uh, in very direct, intentional ways, someone who's going to carry this message to literally the end of the earth, as it was known in that day. So how was this done? Was it done through pre-planned, well-funded missions organizations? No, it it was through persecution. And in this case, basically, it's a refugee crisis. These these disciples in Judea are being scattered. And what uh, chapter 11 tells us is they go all the way up to Syria. People travel to Cyprus on, over water. They, they go everywhere. And yet what we see is that God is using this tragedy to accomplish his purposes. That this, this persecution, this, this crisis uh, the disciples don't see it as such. They see it as a chance to carry this message elsewhere. They see it as a chance to accomplish what Jesus had commanded them to do. And we, we're constantly seeing God using the tragedies of this world for his purposes. I mean, the crucifixion of the Son of God is, is a case in point. You know, that that the devil bruised Jesus' heel, as Genesis 3.15 said, and yet what he didn't see coming was that Jesus was going to crush his head. That God flipped it on its head. That he used this tragedy for his own purpose. And Saul, who's one of the, he's breathing threats and murder, as Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says, against the disciples of the Lord. He's one of the instigators of this persecution. He's one of the the culprits of this crisis. And yet we see that God deals with him. He deals with him in the next chapter. He literally knocks him off a horse. What I'm curious to see is that, because we're in the middle of, I don't know how many refugee crises in the world, um, but what I'm curious to see, and, and I think what we can be praying for, Uh, other than doing what we're already doing, which is helping uh, refugees that are coming to Seattle. But I'm curious to see these refugees evangelize Seattle because a lot of them are coming from uh, Christian churches that are being persecuted where they're from, and they love Jesus. (laughs) And they're coming to Seattle, a place that's that's kind of blasé about Jesus. And... um, I think we'll we'll see interesting things, and uh, yeah. So that's going to be that'll be. I'm curious to see how that how that comes to play. But today we're going to zero in on Philip. Philip, as we said before, he's one of these seven men that were uh, that were assigned uh, this task of taking care of the the widows, taking care of the daily distribution to make sure things were fair. Um, but He's a man full of re- good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And so he's, he's excited about Jesus. 
But again, he's not an apostle. He's, he's just a normal dude. And so, of course, the apostles were just normal dudes too. But, but it's a good reminder for us that God just, he doesn't just assign capital M ministers, uh, capital P pastors, capital whatever, whatever, to do the work of ministry. He assigns every one of us, just normal people, uh, to do the work of ministry. And it's a good reminder. So how does the Spirit guide everyday Christians like us in his purposes? So there's three things we're going to see here in chapter 8. The first is that the Spirit partners us with other people that we can see. I know it. Stay with me. He partners us with other people that we can see. But secondly, he partners us with other people that we can't see. But thirdly, the reality is that we are partnering with him. That we're... He's not just coming alongside us. We're coming alongside him in what he's doing. And we see him deeply involved in the lives of human beings here in this chapter. So he partners us with others we can see. Let's look at that. So we see uh, Philip was part of those disciples that were scattered. And it seems that he was alone in traveling to Samaria. It just says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, or a city in Samaria, and proclaimed to them the Christ. You know, we don't know how many disciples in total were scattered, but it it seems like there's only one who wanted to go to Samaria. And that's not surprising, considering that, according to John chapter 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, it says. So there's there's this animosity that existed regionally, racially as well as uh, religiously in, in, the, in the beliefs and the customs. Um, the Samaritans had some basically syncretistic beliefs that they incorporated Judaism into other um, like Assyrian and other practices. Basically, they believed different things about God than the, Ju- the Jews in Judea. And so there's, there's division, there's, there's animosity. But Philip goes there. And an incredible revival breaks out there. He seems to single-handedly convert this entire city. And it includes a popular magician or sorcerer named Simon. And then, you know, we see people getting baptized. We see people amazed by the, the signs that Philip is performing. The word that he's proclaiming about Jesus. People are believing it. And they're getting baptized, including Simon. And then in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. And Peter and John came down, and they, they, uh, they observed what was going on. They acknowledged that these people are getting, they're, they're uh, confessing belief in Jesus, and yet, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit isn't, doesn't seem to be present in this revival. And so they show up, they, they pray for these people, they lay their hands on these people to receive their, the Holy Spirit, and then they do. So the, the question that probably we're all asking is, why the disconnect? You know, what did Philip not do uh, to, 
you know, pr- to inhibit the Holy Spirit from making his presence known here in Samaria. Why did the Holy Spirit not fall on them? What's going on? You know, what was God doing in this specific situation, and how can we learn from it? So, all we can do is speculate, because it doesn't say why. It just says it happened. But one speculation is to say that God was using this, basically, God was using Judean Jews, Peter and John, to come in and affirm and confirm the faith of these Samaritan Christians, thereby uniting the Judean and the Samaritan church, because in the past the Judean and Samaritan uh, Jewish communities were divided. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But in, in the next several chapters, it's, it's, it's a toss-up on what happens first, what happens when. Baptism, Holy Spirit, confession, which happens which first. There's stories of all of them happening at separate times. When Peter is proclaiming the gospel to Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion, and his family, it says the Holy Spirit fell on them while he was still speaking. It doesn't even say they confessed Jesus as the Christ. He just fell on them. And then they were baptized. <laughs> and, then, and then with Saul, he perceives the Holy Spirit in verse 17 of chapter 9. And then he arose and was baptized. And so we don't really know. This is God's gift. This isn't our gift. Like Simon, we, we cannot purchase this gift and know all the ins and outs of how it works. All we know is that it's, it's God who works. And so we don't really know, but when Peter and John do come, what we don't see them doing is kind of redoing what Philip had already done. Philip had already proclaimed to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was done. They didn't need to redo it or undo it or, or clarify some things. They just came alongside Philip, saw a need, and proceeded to pray <laughs> in partnership. And so we don't see a competition. We don't see Philip like, ah, oh, man, why couldn't I do that? He's not bummed about it. It's just what the Lord was doing. We don't see him discouraged because God, for whatever reason, withheld the outward gifts of the Spirit while he was the sole person. So we, what we actually see happen is when Peter and John come, they see what happened. They see the city of Jesus' people now. And then they address it. The Holy Spirit falls. And then they head back to Jerusalem. But what route do they take? They don't take the shortest route. They take the route that goes, according to verse 25, by many villages of the Samaritans. And so what Philip's ministry actually does is it, it asks and invites partnership in the gospel and even people that might not have wanted to go to Samaria end up in Samaria and end up preaching their way through this this historically you know place of animosity you know between Jews and Samaritans so we learn here that making disciples as individual Christians can be a joint effort with other individual Christians and that's a good thing because what you can offer your unbelieving neighbor or coworker or family member or friend 
is different than what another believer can offer them. You know, it's the same gospel, but you're a different person. Coming from someone else, it's going to sound differently and perhaps sound more attractive. Someone who can relate with them more, perhaps, on things. Many times, and I'm preaching to myself here, many times we are protective of our unbelieving friends because we think we're, we're, you know, only we have the sensitivity to bring up Jesus at the right time for them. Otherwise, you know, so that they won't be offended. Let's not think of it like that. Let's think of this as a joint effort. Like you have loved ones. I have loved ones. We, want, we just want them all to know Jesus. And so we can partner with each other, at the very least in prayer, inviting our brothers and sisters in Christ to be in prayer for our loved ones. I mean, talk about personal. And a lot of times we pray for our loved ones to know Jesus for our entire lives. I mean, I grew up, and it almost became something where I didn't even know what I was praying, but we just prayed it every, every meal. Pray for our family members to know Jesus. Pray for our family members. To, and like, I didn't even, I was like seven, eight, nine. This is just what you pray. You pray for your family members to know Jesus. We can invite each other into that. You know, at home group, we can, we can say, I've got this coworker. I love him to death. I want him to know Jesus. Please pray for me. Pray for ways that we can love him together. And we'll see what happens. So the Holy Spirit partners us with others we can see. So Philip partnered with Peter and John to reach this community. But he also partners us with others we can't see. I'll I'll show you what I mean. So Philip, there in verse 26, after this, this happening in Samaria, after this whole city seems to get saved, after Peter and John come and and continue the revival, and continue the the good thing that was happening. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip is asked by an angel to go meet with an Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of the eunuch's commute home from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. And this, according to experts, was more modern-day Sudan. But it's at sort of the southern tips of the Nile and where it kind of divides into all these tributaries. That's where this kingdom was, the kingdom of Candace. And he was a court official, the treasurer, someone who's important in this, in this royal uh, organization. And he was a eunuch. So that means he was likely castrated from birth to make way for him to be a, uh, basically not a, not a threat Not a threat due to his own lineage, not a threat to the queen. He's someone who can be trusted with with deep secrets of the kingdom of of the nation. And so Philip is asked by this angel to meet with this guy in the middle of his commute home from Jerusalem. I mean, talk about just God dropping you into a situation that has so much backstory. I'm sure Philip is just like, okay, where are we at here? And yet that's, that's all he had. <laughs> that's all he had to go on was, this, was God's direction. And so the Holy Spirit, he partners us with others we can't see. Somebody told this Ethiopian eunuch about the God of Israel. I don't know who did. I don't know how he found out about the God of Israel. 
I don't know who he purchased the scroll of Isaiah from. That was not an easy thing to access in those days. And it, it appears that he was wealthy. He had the means. But where did he learn about this? Was it on official court business? And he's just, he's, it was during one of the feasts, perhaps? And, and someone in Judaism told him about, about the Hebrew God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We have no idea. We don't get his backstory. But he has one. And so Philip is dropped in the middle of this guy's story. And there were people that participated in that story. God cared about this person, big time. And Philip wasn't the only one used by the Spirit in his life. In Paul's uh, first letter to the church in Corinth, he is rebuking them for putting too much of their identity in their favorite pastor. Elevating the work of one pastor, one apostle, one evangelist over another. Saying, you know, I, I follow Paul, okay? I follow Apollos. He's a little bit more gifted in speech. I follow Jesus. Yes, I win. It's like they were doing that. They were playing that kind of tribal game within the church. And Paul's like, stop. <laughs> this is the same Jesus so quit it. But what he says is, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And here's where we get this sense. They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Only the Holy Spirit sees the big picture in any one person's life. You, know, you, know, you have no idea where a person is with Jesus when you encounter them on any given day. I don't care if you've known them for your whole life. You still don't really know where they're at on that day with Jesus. They could be 1,000 conversations away from faith, or they could be three conversations away. Either, in either scenario, you don't know which part you're playing. You don't know if you're watering and there's about to be a, a sprout, or you don't know when, when the water is just, I mean, it's got a long ways to go. You have no idea. But it doesn't mean you won't be part of the watering of the seed that was planted. And when you plant, or you water, or you, by God's grace, harvest, the Spirit is partnering you with other believers that you can't see, that have gone before you, or will come after you in this person's journey. We don't get to take the credit. We just get to play the part that God has us to play. He's the only one with that 30,000-foot view of each person. We just get to be in the trees, loving people, talking to people, and bearing witness 
to what Jesus has done in our lives. But sometimes we get to participate in the actual harvesting of an individual for eternal life, which is what the Holy Spirit had Philip do with this man. But when that happens, though, we need to realize he's not partnering with us. We're partnering with him. And we see that in how intentional and and focused God's attention is to reach this one person. So let's look at it. How do we do it? What do we need to do to partner with the Spirit in our individual lives, in our individual uh, walks with him? Well, the first thing we see Philip do is obey. So let's read it again. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And then verse 27. And he rose and went. And then in verse 30, or verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this, this chariot. This one, right there. In verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So the first step in how we partner with the Holy Spirit is we obey him. And that's a pretty simple thing. It's, it's simple. I mean, the Spirit or the angel said to Philip, do this. He did it. The Spirit said to Philip, do this. And he did it. It's like there's nothing else. It's pretty simple. But, I mean, for us, it's hard <laughs> because it assumes, we, it assumes we believe in the Spirit enough to, to listen to what he has to say. It, it assumes that we ask him what he wants us to do. It assumes that we believe in a good God who wants to reach everybody. It assumes that we've been reached ourselves and that we know the presence of the Comforter personally. So obedience to the Spirit assumes a lot. It assumes a deep relationship, one in which the Holy Spirit has free reign, one in which the Holy Spirit can speak, one in which there's margin enough and time enough to listen. So we can start there. But the second thing Philip does, uh, we'll keep reading, and he rose and went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So the second thing we, we see Philip do here after obeying is contextualizing. He, and that's a, that's a long word all to say he listened to what the person was going through. He listened to where the person was. He didn't say, uh, hey, um, hey, so there's this, so the book of Genesis says, uh, so Jesus, he actually rose from, do you know who Jesus, so he didn't start there. He, he started with where the person was at. I mean, it so happened that the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, which is kind of a, you know, a fat pitch. But at the same time, he, cont- he made it specific to this person. 
This involves simply listening to the person. Where are they at with Jesus? Where are they at with Scripture? Where are they at with the church? Where are they at in navigating the difficulties of life? Contextualizing the gospel just means helping someone connect the good news about Jesus to where their life is actually at today. It's not relativizing the gospel or changing it to fit the situation. It's just helping someone to realize that the gospel applies to them, to their life, to their problems, to their hopes, to their fears, to their dreams, to their senses of of right and wrong, of virtue and the other. Do we realize that the gospel applies uniquely and beautifully to every single person we encounter every day? It applies. It's that big. You know, do we realize that the gospel applies to the things we're going through right now? It's that big. It's what they call efficacious, which is kind of a medical term to mean it works. (laughs) It works. Yes. It works, and it works whoever you are in whatever state you're in. The gospel works. So that's the second thing. The third thing we see is boldness. There's two aspects to Philip's boldness here. There's a knowledge of how Scripture points to Jesus, and there's a willingness to take the conversation all the way to Jesus. He says uh, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, The passage of Scripture that he was reading was Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Philip, get this, opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and he got baptized. I'm going to read you a little story. It's about, uh, well, you'll get it. How afraid we are of religious talk. This is, we're in Seattle. This person was in England. Same thing. How afraid we are of religious talk. How we pride ourselves on our reserve. And how ready we are to freeze up any warm, eager soul who is not quite so taciturn as we are. There was an Indian gentleman who once came to this country because he had been filled with an insatiable desire to learn all he could about immortality. And he supposed people in England, or Seattle, could tell him something. He went to London, and to his neighbor at table one evening, he said, I should like to know what you think about immortality. He received the answer, Ah, in this country we don't talk about these subjects at dinner. And that was the end. That sounds like Seattle. We we pride ourselves. No, we we just don't go there. We can be at peace. We just don't go there. (laughs) How lame. How lame is that? And you might say, you know, Philip got an easy target. You know, he got a, he got just, I mean, how could you miss? He was reading Isaiah 53, which is basically the Old Testament telling of the gospel. You might say, I never have opportunities that tailor-made. But they exist. I'm just going to tell you about two. One time, I was forced to stay overtime at work 
uh, uh, clinic, and I was really annoyed because I hate staying overtime. Got to get back, wife and kids. <laughs> and whenever I stay overtime, I justify Ubering home, right? I did because I'm being paid overtime. I can Uber home. Great. Kind of equals out. Happened to be Ubering home after staying overtime, grumpy because I had to stay overtime. And can you tell I don't like to stay overtime? <laughs> and the Uber driver uh, was talkative. And I wasn't feeling that way. But he, for, I don't know how it got there, but something came up about church. And he said, do you prefer the Old or New Testament? And I was like, that's a weird question. And I said, well, I guess the New, because it's the New Testament that reveals who Jesus is, and, and it's through the, the revelation of Jesus that we can then read the Old Testament in, in God's promise of, of Jesus to come and die for us and, and all that. And uh, he just goes, I think I want that. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, but I'm still grumpy from working overtime. I'm not in the right, just can we start over? No, he was just ready. <laughs> he was just low-hanging fruit. And for whatever reason, God gave me that. Not for anything I deserved, but he just said, here, this will pick you up. And I literally was springing for joy once I got out of the Uber going into my house. It was like, wow. So that happened. That's kind of like this. But this also happened a week ago. Someone popped by our picnic who was ready to receive Jesus. And one of our number, after a very brief conversation, prayed with him to receive Jesus. That's a story. We were plopped in the middle of it. Praise God. And so these things do happen. But we just have to be willing. We have to be listening. We have to actually want that to happen. And are we going to partner with him in what he's doing? Closing up here, I just want to make three quick observations of the kind of a God this is. The Holy Spirit took Philip away from a successful ministry revival. And he put, the, he put him in the desert to meet up with one person. God, he leaves the 99 who are doing well, who are healthy, who are eating, who are receiving his nourishment. He, he, and he goes after the one. That's the first observation. That's the kind of a God we serve, the kind of a God that goes after that person. Secondly, this wasn't just an ordinary person. An, a eunuch was, in Judaism, an outsider. They weren't even allowed in the quarters of worship. They had to stand at a distance. And yet, the very scroll that this person, this, this Ethiopian man, was reading. Just three chapters later, after reading the gospel, of which he didn't know about yet, but three chapters later, it speaks to someone like him. In Isaiah 56, it says, 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let, that, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So we find this God who who goes after the one who makes a family and a heritage for those who do not have it. And then he delivers the gospel as, as laid out as clear as it can be in the Old Testament about Jesus to this man. Written 700 years. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came, and yet it details out the, the sufferings of Jesus specifically, and, and yet the, the overcoming of death that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. It's really incredible the seamlessness of the story God is telling. If you don't have this peace, this cure, this hope that is available in the good news about Jesus doing all that needed to be done on your behalf, it is just as available to you today as it was to this Ethiopian man 2,000 years ago. This, this eunuch was convinced that this Jesus, depicted in Isaiah 53, was his Lord and Savior. So he was immediately baptized. And then Philip was immediately taken away, which I haven't seen that before. But he, the Spirit just took him away, disappeared, onto other things. And tradition holds that this Ethiopian man went home and evangelized his country. He went away rejoicing. The Holy Spirit is all about pointing to Jesus. The more into Jesus you get, the more it's clear of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And the more he wants to use you to point others to him as well. And remember, the Holy Spirit is your comforter as well as your counselor. He's not just there to order you around. He's there to be with you. As your comforter, his job is to draw near to you as the very presence of God convincing you over and over again of how much God loves you. Take him up on his offer of never-ending comfort. And as your counselor, he tells you stuff. He gives you directions. But he's always there at your side the entire time. Take advantage of the adventure that is a life lived dependent on him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the, the purpose that he's about of, of prayerfully proclaiming the good news about Jesus to all people until Jesus comes back. I pray that you would, by your spirit, deepen our knowledge of your love for us and deepen our, our being energized by that mission as well. We need your spirit. Please pour, out, pour him out on us this morning, even now, as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.